We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. I am so delighted today to have as our guest, Pastor Dan Broyles, who is a care pastor at Valencia Hills Community Church and has been working at churches since 2002. Pastor Dan is also a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's licensed as a pastor, and he's one of the co-founders of SAGA, which bridges the gap between mental health services and the church. I first met Dan, I think I first met you at an AACC conference, but later on, Dan invited me to come and speak to his staff at his church on destructive relationships. And I was particularly interested in it because his church is five miles away from John MacArthur's church, which is pretty strict on whether or not a woman can leave an abusive marriage and pretty oppressive to women seeking help. So I love that his church is five miles away. And I love working with Pastor Dan and other pastoral leadership because they have a heart to help people in their congregation develop healthy relationships. And they're honest about what to do when that relationship is unhealthy, toxic, or even dangerous. Dan is one of those pastors who addresses those topics and issues in his church. And so I so appreciate him and his willingness to share with us today. So thank you, Dan, for coming. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. I just appreciate you being here. Dan, tell us a little bit from your pastoral perspective, because I've run, a, and I haven't had it so much lately, but there has been a history, especially in the biblical counseling movement, of thinking that emotional abuse is really not in the Bible, that there is no such thing as emotional abuse. But in your opinion, what does the Bible have to say about emotional and physical abuse in marriage and in relationships? Yeah, I think the, there's so much in the Bible that addresses this issue, but unfortunately it doesn't always get addressed or it gets what I would say really minimized. I mean, I think of Proverbs where rash words are described like a sword thrust. Like if someone walked into one of our churches with a large sword swinging it, no one would be going, oh, let's just continue to worship and enjoy our church service. No, we would run for safety, call security, call 911, and we would take it real seriously. And I think the Bible takes it that serious. I also think of Genesis 6, in which God is literally getting ready to send this flood because of the evil on the earth. And the two specific sins listed, the two sins that are listed are corruption and violence, meaning abuse of power. I think God just takes abuse of power so seriously that he was going to send the flood. And those, he could have listed dozens of other sins, sexual sins, but those two. And I think God takes this really, really seriously. And the, another one is Proverbs 19, 19. It says, a hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll only have to do it again. And hot-tempered doesn't mean it's physical. It can mean emotional. It can mean verbal. Uh, it can mean physical. And so I think this is pervasive throughout the scriptures, but I think we have this idea of is that if it's physical, okay, maybe we'll need to intervene, but if it's emotional, verbal, it can be really, really minimized, which I really think God takes it all really serious. Yeah, I agree. And I think even the New Testament, we think about James when he talks about the tongue mm -hmm. as a weapon that's mm -hmm. such so powerful that can cause so much damage to people that we curse 
people and love God with the same tongue. And he says, brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Paul tells us in Colossians and Ephesians to let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, corrupt speech. Why? Because it hurts people. It damages relationships. And I think that somehow we've put that old nursery rhyme in the scriptures, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And sort of seen that as a proverb, but it's not true. The Bible tells us words do hurt us. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Yeah, I also think of uh, 1 Samuel 25 with Nabal and Abigail. Uh, mm -hmm. Nabal was really controlling. I mean, over-the-top controlling. There's all this conflict going on between the, his shepherds and, and David's shepherds. To the fight, there's going to be this big fight that's going to go down. And Abigail goes behind her husband's back for safety's sake, for safety's sake. And one thing leads to another. Some appeasement happens. And at the end of the story, God pretty much takes out Nabal's life. Actually takes out his life. Now, in, in some Christian settings, they would have confronted the wife saying, how come you didn't just surrender and do what he want? But right, just submit wanted, to him, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. just submit and take the submission stuff way out of context. But she actually went behind his back for the sake of safety and having some wisdom of what's really going to be safe for the, the family. And so there, there's numerous stories like that throughout the scriptures. And I just think, Unfortunately, sometimes they get avoided or don't really get addressed in some tr Christian circles. Yeah, I think we'll talk about that in a minute. Why are we so afraid to deal with this issue? Because I think there are bigger issues behind that. But let's just talk a little bit about, you know, you have a counseling program in your church, and I know that you have some supportive staff. I've been there. They're lovely people, and they really help people in these kind of things. But in your opinion, what helps people start to heal? when they have experienced this emotional or physical abuse in marriage, what is, what is some of the first beginning steps where the lights start to go on for them? One of them is just acknowledging the pain. Yeah. When pain is minimized, growth is minimized. And when especially a pastor can acknowledge the pain, it, when it's validated, it feels like there's almost a chance for healing. But when it is squashed or ignored or it's, it feels like it's invisible, it, it feels like it just complicates the whole situation. And so I think that's one of the biggest things and to also say your pain matters. Yeah, and I think it matters to the pastor and it matters to God. And I think Absolutely. so often what we've told victims is, hey, your pain is selfish and unspiritual. You're not forgiving. You're not forbearing. You're not a strong enough Christian if you have this kind of pain. And it's almost shamed. It's not just ignored. It's shamed and demonized at times. Yeah, there's almost this unspoken mindset sometimes that if you're not over your pain really quickly, you're not a mature Christian. There's, I think of Psalm 56, 8, where it says, God says he collects our tears in a bottle. So, I mean, God takes pain really seriously. He cares deeply about it. The Psalms are, are full of verses that talks about how he does acknowledge our pain. And that is, it's so significant. And the other thing I would also say is really, really important is not encouraging people to trust each other quickly, even their own spouses. There's almost this idea if I'm a good Christian and I have myths, whether it's that religious leader, my husband, my dad, my parent, I am automatically supposed to trust them deeply or trust people deeply because of their titles. 
And that's a really dangerous thing. I actually think that's anti-biblical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we can love people, even our enemy, but trusting is a whole different kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've actually told people, it sounds like you need to love that person, but not trust them. Mm-hmm. But usually those things get so blended together that it gets really confusing. I think of Proverbs 25, 19, that says, trusting in a treacherous man is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. So I've actually advised people, I said, I want you to trust your family member to the degree that they're trustworthy. I think right. that's really biblical. Jesus didn't trust everybody, even though he mm-hmm. loved everybody. And I think, again, that's another burden that I think particularly Christian women have been given that somehow their husband can cheat on them five times. But if they say they're sorry and cry a little bit, somehow we have to forgive and trust and restore that relationship. And trust, I don't know, I'd be curious what you think about this, Dan, but I love that verse in Proverbs 31, where it talks about the husband and wife relationship a little bit in the Proverbs 31 story, this virtuous woman who's pretty independent. She Mm -hmm. manages her own money. She's got her own job. She's making her own decisions. Her husband's not controlling over her at all. And it says she enriches his life and he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of her life. And I think those two qualities of marriage, I can trust you to do me good, not harm. And we enrich each other's lives. We help each other be more of who God calls us to be, I think is the cornerstone of a healthy, godly home and marriage. We help each other grow. We don't enable each other to keep sinning. Absolutely. I really think the healthiest marriages involve two people that are advocates for each other's growth. But I think a lot of times couples just try to put up with each other or survive each other. But there's such a different mindset to think, I want to be an advocate for their growth. I, I honestly recently had a situation which I had talked to a wife, but the husband did not want her to see me anymore because I was a threat to his control, even though they both acknowledged she started to grow. Yeah. Right. And he, it was control was the greater virtue than her growth. And he will label that as headship, right. And submission, submission, right. Right. And instead of celebrating, wow, she found an avenue to have, take some small steps in growth where she had been stuck. It became a threat. Um, and it, because it wasn't about him. And I, I actually was very saddened for the situation and really saddened for even that mindset and the harm that mindset can cause. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I've encountered that as well, that instead of enriching her growth, her growth threatens him. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't want her to grow strong or independent or into a whole person because then his control over her will lessen. She will maybe ask questions or challenge him or not be the docile, submissive person that he thinks she should be. And so what does a woman do in that kind of environment where her husband is opposed to her growth? And I think this is often the case where a woman will then dwarf herself Mm -hmm. into the person her husband wants her to be instead of growing into the person God calls her to be. Right. You know, I think a starting place is really her and God. And saying, God, where do you want me to grow? My first love, even above my family, is you. Now, she has to be really careful there not to also be reactionary or God help this hurt not turn into resentment. I think you have to be really careful there. But really, her first priority is God, even above the wishes of her husband or her family. 
And to go, I would say go go about it slowly, not to be rash in those decisions or how she goes about it. And then at times to even say, I want you to feel respected, but there's sometimes I'm going to do some things because I think this is what God's calling me to do. Whether it's, I'm going to be mentored by this older women in my church. And I think I don't want to be isolated. And that's one of the dangers I see sometimes, especially with emotional abuse or domestic violence is the amount of isolation that can mm-hmm. occur with her and the danger of isolation, how much that can cripple her growth. Yeah. So for her to be able to speak up with respect, mm-hmm. Hey, I do want to respect you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with everything. And I believe that God is calling me. And that's part of the submission whole mandate is to submit to God first. And, you know, so when we're submitting to God and God is calling us to grow, he's never calling us to stay small or silent or shrunken to appease an oppressor. That's never, including a husband. And so I think this is really important to be able to respectfully speak up to even your oppressor, if it's your husband or if it's the government, when they were told to stay silent, I think Peter spoke up and said, we can't do that. We can't do that. That's not what God calls us to do. Absolutely. God, the Bible is really clear about if you have a boss or a government official that tells you something that gets in the way of your connection with God or your obedience to God, you need to go against that. I think the New Testament's really clear about this. And one of the things I've seen that's really concerning sometimes in marriages that my just antennas go up is when the husband has a mindset of difference of opinion equals disrespect. My red flags are going off all the time when there's that mindset of she sees it differently and that's not okay, or that feels not supportive, that, wow, there's some more control issues going on that need to be addressed and looked at. Yeah. And it's also, he's not seeing her as a valid helpmate for him because in order to have a valid helpmate, even if you're an athlete and you hire a coach, they're going to have a difference of opinion than you. And you want that because they're going to tell you, Hey, you're not doing this right. Or you could do this better. If you really want to be a great quarterback, or you really want to be a great athlete on gymnastics or whatever, the coach is going to correct things that you're doing wrong. And I think the role of a helpmate in marriage is that we do speak truth to one another in love. Hey, I know you want to be a good dad, but yelling at the kids isn't going to get you the results you want. And if she's not free to disagree on parenting strategies or on money strategies or whatever they might be in the family dynamic, she can't help her husband grow and be the man that God calls him to be because he doesn't want that from her. He just wants a yes person. Well, I think even in, when I think of Genesis 2, when it talks about Eve was described as a helper, it really, this idea is to match his distinctiveness. And there's a sense of they both bring different gifts to the table that's for a greater good. And I think a wise husband will be like, what can I learn from her? What gifts did God put in her that's going to both, I can learn from and enhance our family life. Absolutely. And to be for that. And to be yeah. thankful to God for that. And vice versa. I mean, I'm so glad, you know, my husband and I are very different, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm much more relationally oriented. He's much more technically oriented. So I was so glad that he was here before this started, because (laughs) as you know, I spilled Coke all over my computer and wasn't sure how to get all that fixed. So I think that having that respect for each other's gifting Mm -hmm. and each other's abilities, instead of trying to squash one because the other feels threatened by that is so wonderful. Yeah, even when I talk to, let's say, a dating couple or an engaged couple, and 
you could see some signs and she sometimes might approach me in like a premarital setting saying, what do you think? Maybe when he's not around and I'll, one of the questions I'll ask her is how has this relationship enhanced your gifts? What part of you has thrived since you've been together with him? And if she can't answer that at all, I'm really nervous for next steps in that relationship. That's a great question. Yeah, great question. So what if there's someone listening out there and they do know of a friend, a a female friend or, you know, a, a colleague at work or someone in their small group and they sense that this person is in a very toxic relationship or mm-hmm. they want to help. It's maybe it's a child, an adult child, and mm-hmm. they want to help. They want to speak into that. They want to do something. What would you do or how would you recommend that they start that conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say first, just acknowledge that you see them struggling. Say, hey, I, I sense something might be going on. Can I listen sometime? Or I sense there's something on your mind. I wonder if we could ever talk and and you have complete freedom to say no. We don't have to, but it's like giving the open door with freedom Mm -hmm. because often people don't even know where to talk there. If someone's in a destructive relationship, they're in survival mode and they don't even know where to turn. They're just trying to get through their day or even their hour by hour. So giving that space to, to talk. And then one of my questions, I do this with, even staff members sometimes that I work with is I'll just say, and how are you doing emotionally as a human being? How are you doing emotionally as a human being? It's amazing what comes out after that. Now, if you ask that question, don't do it with, you know, if, if you have only 60 seconds to listen, you might not do that on the job, but you know, over coffee, asking that question, because there's a lot more, more going on and just be that great listener and not trying to make it all better. I think one of the things that friends can do is to step into people's pain and not make it all better. Mm-hmm. That's a great gift a friend can do is to step in. I'll listen. I'll show compassion. I'll acknowledge, even if there's no quick answer. And I just want you to be less alone with what you're facing. I love that. And I think people really, that is a first step because sometimes once you say it out loud to someone who hears you and it bears witness to that reality, it's much more concrete. Oh my gosh, this is bad. Or, oh my gosh, this is abusive or this is oppressive. And they can, once, when it's all inside, it feels very jumbled, but once you have to put words in a cohesive sentence and say it, and someone looks and shakes their head and says, wow, I am so sorry you're experiencing that. And they share that and they validate that there might not be an answer in that moment, but there is something very valuable that we can give people in that moment. Well, what what happens also is the person who is being hurt in the relationship, they often are numb or minimizing the pain just to cope, just to get through their day. And so when you put words to it, it, it's actually bringing reality to the surface. It's bringing that reality to the surface. And then once in a while, I'll have someone say to me, well, I might be making this a bigger deal than it really is. Something of that nature. Say to, I'll ask them a question. How would you feel if your sister or your daughter had the same relationship? And then there's usually tears. Because mm-hmm. again, we're bringing reality to the surface to face what's really, really going on. Yeah. I remember once that 
the American Association of Christian Counselors Conference, I was speaking and one of the participants asked to speak to me afterwards. And I'll never forget this. We were sitting in one of the empty conference rooms, both on the floor. She was, her head was down. She was talking about her experience in her marriage. And she's talked for about 15 minutes and I didn't say anything. I just sat there and then she mm. lifted up her head. She didn't even look at me while she was talking. She just looked down. Mm. And then she lifted up her head and she said, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? And I said, yes, mm. it sounds crazy. But she didn't know it was crazy till she could hear her own words describe what was going on in her home and in her relationship. And here's a professional counselor who's at the American Association of Christian Counselors Conference. And yet she was in the pot of boiling water and didn't even realize how hot it was until she was able to articulate it. Yeah, one of the tools we end up using at our church is the power and control wheel, which I know you really you know a lot about. And sadly, we have a stack of those sitting in our office. And it's amazing how many times someone will come in and initially say they're here for marriage issues. They're not getting along with their significant other. And I'll start to hear some of those signs of control. And I'll say, can we just look this over together? And all of a sudden the tears become because you're putting words to the seriousness of what's happened. And they're able to step away from just reacting to the day-to-day problems that are going on. And I would say to anybody out there, if you've never seen the power control wheel, whether you're just that friend or a pastor, that's one of the best tools out there just to notice the signs of what can happen in a really controlling relationship. Yeah. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that you can look it up or you can just Google power and control wheel, the Duluth model, and they'll put, I'm sure it'll come right up for you. And why do you think especially churches like MacArthur's that are so strong on complementarianism and headship and submission have such a hard time validating the power and control experience that it's somehow in their minds justified biblical for a husband to be the authority. They would use that word, the authority, even if he is the oppressive authority. Yeah, well, there, I think there, there's lots and lots of reasons for that. One, one of the things kind of more, I'd say globally, I'd say in, let's say church settings at times, I was listening to the Mars podcast on all the stuff that happened with the Mark Driscoll situation. And one of the things they said that I thought was really significant, they asked one of the pastors, how did this happen? Where there was a spiritual abuse going on in the church. And one of the profound things they said is, because good things were happening in our church, we could turn a blind eye to the unhealthy thing. And I've seen that in church settings. The church is growing or that pastor is becoming more well-known or whatever the situation is. And there's, there is some sense of growth numerically or people are listening to them more on the radio or on podcasts. And so people are excited about that. And so success sometimes can get in the way of seeing people's true character. So I think that's one of the reasons. Sometimes also I've seen some church settings where the wife at times is responsible for his self-control. Yeah, a lot. Anger or sex. And I've seen that be really, you know, just think of the phrase, she makes me so mad. Mm -hmm. That's actually a blame statement, Mm -hmm. right? And the counseling pastor who says, well, just stop pushing his buttons or stop doing this or start having more sex. Then he won't do that. And so right. somehow she's responsible for his internal self-control. 
Yeah, and I, I don't see that at all throughout the scriptures. I've actually thought of wherever there's a submission problem, there's a leadership problem. Mm. And so it, it's easier to blame. I mean, that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, where blame can happen. I'm, so if we're really honest about, I would say, loving like Jesus, that in a family setting, even if the wife isn't into sex, has a problem complaining, how is he truly still going to love well? Right? I mean, that, I would say that's that's what Christ does for us. That's what Christ did with his disciples, is there was this continual sacrificial type of love that isn't dependent on how well they respond back to that love. It's and not- I think that, yeah, that's really dicey to actually describe an action, because even if a husband was in that situation, if he loves his wife in a way that tries to enhance her well-being, he wouldn't just enable her dysfunction to continue. Mm-hmm. He would continue mm-hmm. to stimulate in a kind, loving way. Hey, I want to have our marriage be better. I want you to feel right. safe with me. What can we do yeah, to yeah. get you help so that you don't feel yeah. these feelings and really move toward that healing part and in, in the same way for a spouse whose husband's anger. I love you and I want to be married to you, but I can't live with this rage anymore. I want you to get help for this. I want you to learn these things that you need so that we can have a healthy, happy home. And I would say also there's this idea that kind of can permeate into families is our public perception is more important than internal righteousness. Hmm. So our public perception is more important than internal righteousness. So I think of that Ephesians, you know, five passages, is probably the most famous passage in the Bible about marriage, the love and respect and all the stuff mm-hmm. at the end of that, that, that chapter. But earlier in that chapter in 5.11, Ephesians 5.11, it says, bring stuff to the light, expose what's really going on. So sometimes there's this sense of blame, it's her fault, but there's no sense of him confessing his own sin. Mm-hmm. So I said, why don't you model confessing stuff first, confessing where you're struggling and model that first before you even look at whether she's doing stuff right or wrong. But I think in our Americanized culture, our desire to control how people see us is so vital. I've had wives says, I'm terrified to say anything because to be truthful about the marriage is to betray the marriage. Mm-hmm. Especially if I even say it to a pastor or a counselor, to, I, have to be in, I have to be in such control of how people see us. That's a, a lie from the devil that we have Absolutely. to look a certain way in order mm-hmm. to be acceptable. I think that's why people find such freedom in groups like AA and other places where they can just be real and honest with their sins and their struggles. Mm-hmm. But why do you think churches are so reluctant or struggling to help those who are in marriages where there is this emotional and physical abuse that they they kind of want to apply the band-aid or they kind of want to blame the wife if you only did this he would be better or they kind of want to give simplistic answers sort of like I talk about treating the common cold you know it's not the common cold of marriages it's lung cancer of marriages you don't treat them the same way but they sort of give this treatment plan of you know better communication let's have date nights have more sex you know Mm -hmm. love and respect and all these common answers to very serious control oppressive issues And, and sometimes the woman is resisting that control and is resisting that oppression and she's doing it sinfully 
And so she becomes the target of, mm-hmm. well, you're the sinner too. It's mutual. It's both. And, and it's, it, she might be sinning in her resistance to his control, but the control issue is never spoken about because it's sort of implied that he's allowed to do that. Yeah. I honestly think a significant number of pastors believe that domestic violence really isn't a serious problem in their church. Mm. I remember I was talking with a pastor one time about that power and control wheel and and I was talking about domestic violence and relationships. And this pastor, I, I just so appreciate his honesty. It was just a really kind of a genuine moment. And he said, I think there's a really fine line between a really good, strong leader and a controlling, abusing power leader. Uh, and I thought that was so well stated. And I think pastors in general have already a lot of influence and control just by their title alone. They're, you know, they're called shepherds in the New Testament. And so I I think it's humbling to think even for themselves, how have I dealt with the power I've been given in my role? And that that's a humbling thing that I think really needs, say, more addressing in general. So I'd say that's one of the answers. Another one is just like all of us, this is this is across the board, including pastors, we like to deal in areas of life that we feel most confident in. And I'll say most pastors have not been equipped or trained in areas of domestic violence. They're trained in preaching on certain topics, whether it's forgiveness or those communication tools on being kind to one another. And so they don't feel equipped. And so thus they're not, they don't even know what to do necessarily in those situations. And so Kind of the example you used about the difference between a cold and pneumonia. I love that analogy that you've used. If you think everything's a cold, then you don't take it very seriously. And so not knowing the difference, if you went to a doctor who didn't know the difference, there's going to be a lot of problems with that doctor. Mm -hmm. And tragically, a lot of couples have gone to even therapists, pastors, people helpers, and they see it like the cold when it's really a lot deeper. And so even noticing, I think domestic violence is a lot like undetected cancer. Yeah. It keeps growing and no one sees it. Yeah. And that was my experience in a real life story with my mom. She kept going to the doctor and he kept diagnosing her as bronchitis and giving mm-hmm. her antibiotics, stronger ones, stronger ones, stronger ones. Mm-hmm. And eight months later, you know, when she didn't get better and she finally had to call 911 and take an ambulance ride to the hospital, it turned out that she had stage four lung cancer, mm-hmm. which might have been stage three, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. And so the, the problem is that biblical counseling or good Christian counseling is the kind of antibiotic for, you know, bronchitis. And so we think as long as we're applying good biblical counsel, this ought to work. But it's not working because the problem, the diagnosis determines the treatment plan. And so, you you know, you don't give an antibiotic for someone who has cancer. It's impotent. It works really well for bronchitis, but not for lung cancer. And so this is so important. And so how would you, or what would you say to pastors who don't know how to diagnose domestic violence? How could they be better equipped or what should they do in these situations? Well, I would just say the first place is a willingness to be equipped. There's just being willing to go, there, there, there might be something here. I remember I've talked to numerous pastors about, about this, and they'll say to me, you know, I don't hardly hear any women coming up to me talking about domestic violence. They never say that. So then they have the assumption, is not going on? And so 
what happens in, then the issue is minimized or they think that's that one rare exception that happens every two years in some in one part of our church. So just being equipped to know the signs. So for instance, like one, one of the signs is jealousy. If that woman goes out to coffee with her sister and the husband goes, oh, you love your sister more than me, my red flags are going off all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like there's control. But the, somebody who doesn't know the signs might be like, oh, it sounds like she, she didn't really communicate that she loves him a lot and she needs some more affirmation mm-hmm. and we just need to love each other better. So willingness to be equipped is absolutely essential. One of the tragic th- things I've seen is I've had women go to pastors and they you know, are told just to be more loving or more respectful when really there's domestic violence going on. And what happens is the woman starts to believe church isn't a safe place and God isn't for me. Yeah. And I think that that just breaks my heart. I know it would break even that pastor's heart if they really knew that, that when the pain isn't acknowledged in church settings, the meaning that's given is, does God even care about this pain? And if God doesn't even care about my pain, why would I want to surrender to him or give Mm -hmm. my life to him? And so I would, I hope every pastor becomes more equipped to know the signs and to see it that not every couple that comes to you needs marriage counseling. They often, I recommend, need separate support. There's a lot of couples that don't, that have marriage issues that the first step isn't marriage counseling. I think they need, he needs his help and he, and she does too. They both need help. Even in LA County where I'm at, when a couple, when a, when a guy is convicted of domestic violence, often they're court ordered not to, at first to not get marriage counseling, but to get help first separately because that girlfriend or that wife is not going to tell the whole truth in that first session with that pastor or that counselor if she feels afraid going home later that night and what happens is you don't deal with reality and so i've seen those situations repeated over and over again and it's just tragic and what i say two things is abuse of any kind addictions of any kind and you know, sexual acting out, including sexual addictions, are not marriage problems. They cause right. marriage problems. And so they're personal sin issues. And so you don't fix them by addressing the marriage. You fix them by addressing the heart issues that cause those actions to happen. And once that can happen and there's healing there, then maybe you can put the marriage back together. But you can't put the marriage back together and solve this problem. It's like trying to fix the damage that termites cause without taking care of the termites. Yeah. It's just going to well, happen again. Yeah. One of the illustrations I've sometimes used with pastors, I'll say, how effective do you think marriage counseling is if every other se- session, the man is high on cocaine? How effective is the mm-hmm. marriage counseling? It's not going to be. He has to get sober, learn some new tools, have a period of sobriety, and then maybe some marriage counseling after some sobriety is set in. I would say it's very similar the path I would recommend. There's some steps, there's acknowledgement of the pain cause and some clear steps taken before they jump into marriage counseling. The other thing that I think is kind of a, a misunderstanding of scripture or maybe a misapplication of good p- biblical principles is, you know, I think that the sanctity of marriage, as well as the sanctity of the institution of the church has sometimes probably too often been a higher priority 
than the safety and the sanity of the people in it. So we read today about all kinds of spiritual abuse, whether it's from, you know, the incidents with Ravi Zacharias or others, you know, sexual abuse in the church has been covered up and ignored and tolerated. Mark Driscoll thing for Mars Hill, all of these kind of large church abuses. And we've covered it because we've thought the institution oh, there's good things going on, like you said, or, you know, we're, we're getting more converts or whatever the institution trumps the safety and the sanity, the well-being of the people in the institution. And I don't think that the Bible teaches that. If the institution itself is corrupt, let's talk about it, whether it's marriage or the church, we have to address it and not cover it over to protect. We don't need to protect God. God will protect himself. We need to speak the truth. You know, one of my prayers sometimes is, God, please bring the secrets to the surface. Yes. Bring them to the surface. I think of King David and his son Solomon, and there was so many, I would say, sexual secrets with that family, mm -hmm. assault, sexual assault, all sorts of stuff going on. And I believe at the end of Ecclesiastes, what I think Solomon wrote, he actually writes the very last verse, that God would bring everything before including every secret thing mm. he uses the word secret thing at the very end of his life as he's writing the end of ecclesiastes and i find that one of my personal beliefs is if god is not changing the private secret parts of my life i'm not truly growing whether mm. it's how i deal with money my sexuality my blaming responsibility resentment contentment forgiveness all those, if God's not really changing those parts of me, my change is probably superficial. Yeah. I want God to change those things from this. So I think when the scriptures talk about kind of the inside, the inside out stuff, I want God to change all those parts of me that need refining radically. Oh, amen. I would say amen to that. Dan, you have, I want to switch just to more practical things. You have something called case managers in your church. What does that look like? And how do they work with families? in situations where there might be some suspicion of abuse or some suspicion of dysfunction in that family, how might they help or identify things or how do they come alongside? What is this? Yeah. So I'm really excited about something we call family stress support. And so prior to being a pastor, I was, you know, I was a social worker with LA County and I was the one that would go in and assess for child abuse. And if a child would need to be taken away to go to foster care and all those kind of really really delicate situations. And so I have a, a relationship still with LA County Department of Children's Services. And this program is set up to help families that are truly in need get the further help. And so this is not just for children's services, but it's also for our local public schools or other, I would say, nonprofits that they can reach out to us and refer a family to us. It's always voluntary. We never, we don't do any court-ordered stuff. This isn't court-ordered therapy at all, but they refer to us. And then I assign someone to that family. And that case manager's top goal is to be a bridge builder between the family's needs and community resources. So they will go either by phone, Zoom, in person to the person's home and say, what's going on? What are your needs? What, what's, what's your family need help with? And let's figure out a way that, that some group, some nonprofit, some church can step in and provide help and be really, I would say, almost a, a resource advocate for your family. And they'll work with them then for months. So they don't become their therapist, 
but they become that middle person. And then often, and not always the case, but often churches can do things far quicker than any government agency could. They can be mm-hmm. creative in solving some problems and say, oh, you need help with this? We can, I know of this church down the road that might be able to help you. Can I bridge that gap? Do I have permission to? We always ask permission to do those things. We never want to feel like we're imposing things on people, but really just say, hey, do you want it? And a high percentage of time, people are like, wow, you'd be willing to do that? And there's no strings attached. The people can get this help, whether they're part of our church or not. There's no strings attached that way. And so we found it's been a great avenue just to love on people yeah. and just to meet people where they're at. When in today's church or church culture, people are suspicious of church. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way to kind of bridge that gap, say, we just want to care about you. Whether you end up joining our church or not, that has no bearing on you getting help. We want to just help you, whether it's We'll sit down with the principal of your school and figure out what's going on with your student if you need to. Or we'll mm-hmm. sit down with that nonprofit and figure out some counseling for your child. We'll be we'll make those phone calls with you for the to the doctor's appointment. So we're finding then that also that the schools and the social workers are thrilled to have a resource that's beyond them. Because they can't always do this. Some of them are overworked or their caseloads are high. You know, the average school counselor at a local public high school, they, they don't have the time to meet all the individual needs going on. So this is a great way for the church to be a bridge to the community. I love that. I wish every church would do that. My sister belongs to a church that is doing that with immigrants that are coming in and they Mm -hmm. have that bridge. They don't speak the language. They don't know the resources and really helping the immigrants who are just finding themselves a little lost, find what resources are available for them to get a driver's license, to get a job, to get, you know, their immigration status legalized and all of those kind of things. And so when we can be the arms and feet of Jesus in situations, it can make a big difference in people's lives. And that's what God calls us to do. And I just love that your church is doing that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, we love seeing what's happening. And we're getting to meet with people we would never get to meet with. Yeah, Uh, What a privilege that is. Yeah. Pastor Dan, thank you so much for being with us. Is there anything, there are probably women who are listening to this that are saying, I wish my pastor would listen to this. I wish my pastor would do this. I wish he would think like Pastor Dan is thinking. How might they approach their pastor if they were being able to take the covers off and be more honest about what they might need from their church or how they might want to share their story? How might they approach their pastor in the best way so that he might press pause and listen? Yeah, I think that'd be a careful conversation. I would not recommend going to the pastor and having this almost approach of see something else you're missing or something else you're doing wrong. I, that, a burden a lot of pastors carry of they can't meet all the needs going on. And so I would say coming from a place of humility and saying, I'm not sure if you know this, but there's a lot of pain in our church that is not being spoken about. I wonder if we could start praying that the pain would come to the surface that we could address. I wonder if we could pray that way. Because I know maybe she could say, I have a couple of friends of mine who've been in the difficult marriages. It's not just communication issues, but maybe there's some emotional or physical abuse. And I'm concerned for them. And and, and I, I know you care about people. Assuming the best of pastors is a good place to start too. Don't assume their motives, but giving benefit of the doubt is really important. And just, I always encourage those say that the pain would rise to the surface to get help and for that for the woman to say if you ever come across a situation like that 
maybe I could be a person that supports that woman just as a friend, not to be her, her therapist or counselor. I just want to come alongside her to help her feel a little less alone. And I just want to be a resource if, if possible. So those would be some gentle ways. I would obviously do that in humility. And I, I would say I, I've referred both therapists, pastors, lay people all over the place to Leslie to what you're doing. I love the work that you're doing. I think you're making an amazing difference literally across the country in giving voice to pain that is often unspoken, but pain that Christ cares deeply about. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm trying to tell people about, Leslie, all the stuff you're doing all the time, because I just think uh, I love that you care for the voice of the brokenhearted, but you still have great respect for men. You have great respect for the church. You have great respect for marriage. You're not trying to make break marriages apart. You love all the above. And those are all things that I think resemble God's heart. Well, thank you. And I do. And it is my heart that every marriage be restored if possible. Absolutely. And I love when men are willing to humble themselves or women. I, I was abused by a woman, so it's not just men who are abusive. Mm -hmm. But I think that it does require that humility to say, I need help and I need to learn how to be a different kind of person. And not only do I need to, I want to. And that you can't make someone have, they have to have that inside of them. God wants them to change, but even though God wants them to change, they have to want to change. And so that becomes the real rub is where they don't want to, and you want them to, and you can't live with someone who doesn't want to and is unsafe. And that's where the church has such a hard time knowing how to navigate through that because of their high value for the sanctity of marriage. And I have that value as well. And that's where we have to really think through our values. And I love how you said it so articulately, Dan, that our values are truth and love. And we don't compromise truth with love and cover over evil. That's not a good use of love. It's enabling evil to flourish then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you pray for us before we go? Yeah, absolutely. God, I thank you for the gift of marriage. I also thank you for the pastors around our country who are serving faithfully. I also pray for those in abusive relationships that feel trapped, that feel like they have no one to talk to. God, I pray your spirit would do a great work, both in the, in the individual lives of people who are hurting and also in the lives of, of churches, of, of leaders. God, I pray for all of us, whatever our role is, that we would have a willing spirit before you. God, I pray you continue to bless this ministry in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so Bye. much for having me. It's been a privilege. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you need clarity on whether your marriage is difficult, disappointing, or destructive, go to leslievernick.com forward slash start for Leslie's free quick start guide. It's totally private and will help you get clear on your next step. Again, that's lesliebernick.com forward slash start. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.